because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Well, the past two episodes, we've been focused on debates, uh, in particular, my debate with leading environmentalist Bill McKibben. And we're also going to be focused on debates for the next two episodes, because about a week after my debate with McKibben on fossil fuels in general, uh, I had a debate with Dr. Dino Ress of the uh, University of Wisconsin University System. Uh, He's a a chemist specializing in uh, what they call renewable energy. And that debate was on oil, which is arguably the most controversial fossil fuel, and certainly a favorite topic of mine. So the topic was oil, dangerous addiction, or healthy choice. And as you might imagine, I took the healthy choice side. So in these next two episodes, we're going to play you the first half and the second half of the debate, and I'm also going to have some commentary on the debate, some lessons that I took, some lessons that I hope that you take. So we'll get started pretty quickly with the first one. I won't say too much in advance of it, but just as as one thing to think about when listening to it, and I said something similar for the McKibben debate, if you're going to track one variable in these debates, I would suggest that it be, what is the person's conclusion, or what what are the conclusions of each of the debaters? Because ultimately, we're debating something that is supposed to have some impact in reality. So we want to know exactly what are they asserting about reality and what exactly do they want to do in reality. And historically, when people want to do bad things in reality, they are often very, very vague about what they want to do. Often they're very specific about the problems of the things that they oppose or the thing that they want to displace. Uh, For example, the communists were very clear about what they thought was wrong with capitalism, but they were much less clear about how it would actually work for a handful of dictators to um, coercively run an entire society. What would that look like? How would decisions be made? How would productivity occur? How would creativity occur? What would become of the ideas of individuals? And unfortunately, in practice, all of those things became throttled because it was a very, very bad idea, but they were rarely forced or required to specify their conclusions. It could just stay in the abstract as, well, we want, you know, we want a dictatorship of the proletariat, the more explicit ones would say, even. We, we want a society run by workers. But what the heck that means wasn't too clear, and it only became clear when it was way too late. So when we're talking about following the advice of any kind of of figure, myself included, it's very important to know what exactly do they advocate in reality, so then we can really bring our knowledge to bear and think, okay, how what, what do I think that would look like? What does the evidence show that that would look like? And as one final thought on this, it's, it's important to have the skill of translating uh, what people say into actual conclusions, because often people will communicate in terms of euphemisms. So, for example, um, in this first part of the debate, the debate uh, Dino, Dr. Ress, he talks about how 
we need to have a vision for the future of energy. And that's pretty abstract. And the question is, what does that mean? Does that mean that there should be free people who are free to envision and enact their brilliant ideas? Or does it mean that people who think they're brilliant have the right to shove their ideas down the rest of our throats? Those are two very different things. So I found it very helpful in general to, to work on always translating. If someone is being vague, ask myself, okay, what are they actually saying in reality? And then if I have no idea, then I'll ask them. And then if they, if they won't answer even then, then, you know, then it's a real problem. But you can assume it's, it's not something very good. So in any case, if you want, consider, listen to this, think about what are the conclusions of both of the debaters? And then when there's vagueness, how do you translate? How do you translate a vaguely stated or unstated conclusion or rhetoric into an actual conclusion? So with that in mind, hope you enjoy the debate or the first 40 minutes of it, and I'll be with you on the other side. The topic of tonight's debate is oil, dangerous addiction or healthy choice. Each side will argue their position on the use of and importance of oil in our society. To my left is Dr. Dino Ress. Dr. Dino Ress received his bachelor's in chemistry from Northland College in 1999 and his PhD in organic chemistry from the University of Iowa in 2005. On my right is Mr. Alex Epstein, president and founder of the Center for Industrial Progress. So please join me in thanking Mr. Epstein and Dr. Ress. All right, so why do I have a hotel icebox in front of me right here? Um, the reason is it's because it's approximately a gallon. And I, I want to give you kind of a visual on how big a role that oil plays in your life. So every day, if you're an average American, you consume about three of these worth of this kind of mysterious and controversial material called oil. And that means as a population, every day we consume about a billion of these, a billion gallons. That is, that is a lot of oil. And so the question is, well, you, know, you heard the title, right? Is this a healthy choice? Or is it a dangerous addiction? Or maybe is it, is it somewhere in between? And I think to answer this question, we need to answer two uh, questions that, that I think come first. And that is, what exactly do we use this billion gallons for? Where does it go? We know some of it goes to gasoline, but it goes a lot of other places. And then equally important, why do we use so much oil? Is it a conspiracy, is big oil messing with us? What's, what's going on? Uh, and I, I want to get you guys involved. So just um, raise hands. What, what do you guys know that we use oil for? Yes. Uh, okay, so transporting food uh, using what? Okay, so trucks. So we know usually of gasoline for cars, but there's also another form of oil fuel diesel that trucks, and trucks run a huge amount of our economy. Yes? Okay, very good. So this is, this is something that I at least never learned in college, but almost the vast majority of materials around you that aren't wood, metal, glass, etc are actually made from this material called oil. So I just, uh, before I got into the room, 
I just made a little inventory of just a couple of things in this room that were made of oil, so no particular order. The chairs, the cameras, the floor polish, the paint, the insulation, the speakers, the rubber in your shoes, anyone wearing makeup, uh, the polyester in your clothes, if you're wearing natural fibers, the fertilizer that went to grow your clothes, um, anything rubber, water bottle, any ink on any paper, your glasses, your hair product, that's just a tiny, tiny sample. Anything plastic, synthetic in the world comes from oil. Uh, someone else was raising their hand. Yes? Okay, very good, another synthetic thing. So when we produce a pharmaceutical, so you know, if someone is taking a drug for uh, depression or to cure some illness, that is made of oil. Anything else? All right, well just to, to name a couple of important ones, um, every time we fly, so I, you know, I flew here this morning, that's almost always oil. Um, but then there's a whole realm of industrial machinery, of, of vehicles, that we don't use to transport ourselves, but that we use to, uh, to go get things from the world. So basically all mining equipment is powered by oil. All agricultural equipment is powered by oil. And just to give you a sense of how, how big a deal this is, I wanna read you a little bit, uh, a quick quote on how the use of oil revolutionized agriculture. And agriculture is just about the most important thing because we have seven billion people on earth, it's really hard to, feed seven billion people, and if you don't know what goes into it, there's a large chance of making a big mistake. Um, so this is actually written in around 1980, but it still holds. He said, agriculture in the US went through a revolution so stunning, this is by the way an energy expert named Petter Beckman, that the preceding 10,000 years since man first raised crops seemed like unimportant prehistory. And then as one of the main things he, he attributes, it's the gasoline engine. In the 15 years from 1960 to 1975, production of poultry and dairy products tripled and meat production more than doubled for the same amount of invested labor. Um, in 1910, one, one US farmer supplied 7.1 persons with food. Today, he supplies 59. With a team of horses, he plowed about one acre per day. With the tractor, he plows uh, 35 or more. An acre of his land yielded 26 bushels of corn. Today, it will yield 27, uh, 97. So the idea of this is, you know, regardless of what we think of oil, we have to realize that today, in our economy, in our lives today, it plays this uh, amazingly, amazingly important role. And the, the two big things, if you just want to retain it, one big thing it provides us is portable power. So anytime you have a moving vehicle, 90, or 95% of the time, that's powered by oil. And then all these plastics and synthetics, they're called petroleum products. So it's, it's four Ps, okay? So portable power, petroleum products, just to, just to help you remember it. Now, there's the question then of, of why. Why do we use oil for so many things? I mean, it's really striking. You know, this is the most coveted material in civilization. People go to war over it. I mean, it's, it's pretty remarkable. And to give you an indication of why, I wanna just tell you a quick story which is how we came to use oil in the first place, and particularly with the most famous use of oil and the biggest use of oil, which is driving automobiles. Now, before I had studied the history of oil, I figured that, well, we always had used oil-based fuel like gasoline to power automobiles, and the issue was, could we find, you know, there were promising new replacements like ethanol in the electric car. Uh, but then when I studied it, I found something really interesting, which was that in the early 1900s, 
there were three big competitors for what was going to power the automobile. And they were oil, ethanol, and the electric car. So that was pretty interesting. And then on top of that, what was interesting was that in, for many people, ethanol and the electric car seemed to be the future. So for example, here's the, the New York Times. In 1911, it says the electric car, quote, has long been recognized as the ideal solution. And then it called it much more economical. And there's a whole series of articles like this going through the 20s, the 30s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. So it had huge popular support. Many prominent scientists thought this was the, the solution. And then ethanol, I find even more interesting. So ethanol is a form of alcohol that's distilled. You know, it's kind of like, it's basically like beer uh, for your car. Just like beer has a lot of calories, ethanol has a lot of cal calories, so it's good, it's good for, you know, it's, it's pretty good for powering a car. Now, what I found really interesting about the history of ethanol is that the number one champion of ethanol in US history was Henry Ford. So Henry Ford was the most powerful man in the auto industry. His first car, uh, called the Quadricycle, used ethanol. And to, to his dying day, he called ethanol, quote, the fuel of the future. And yet, he was the most power, he's the first billionaire in America, the most powerful man in the oil world, and he used gasoline. So why did he use gasoline? Well, the reason was is that he had no choice because it turned out that in that point in history, gasoline was the best and cheapest way of powering a car, whether Henry Ford liked it or not. Now, I think his theories about ethanol were wrong, but regardless of whether they were wrong long-term, they didn't work short-term. And what every other field is the same. The reason that, the reason that we use oil for these things doesn't mean we'll always use oil. But it means that, that for a long time, it's been the best and cheapest way of doing things. And just to give you um, kind of two quick indications of why, one is what we can call the, the concentration of energy, or the strength to weight ratio might be an easier way to understand it. Oil, for the amount of, of volume, has the highest amount of energy. And what that enables you to do is take vehicles farther on less fuel. So for example, Oil has 25 times the strength to weight ratio of the best battery in the world today. So 25 times. So if you stick a battery on a plane, that plane will not take off. If you stick a battery in a plane while it's flying, that plane will crash. Um, now, the other advantage oil has historically is cost. And the reason is despite, you know, we hear a lot about running out of oil, there's only a certain amount of oil. Well, in a sense, that's true, but what we don't hear is the amount of oil that exists in one form or another in the ground is you know, one or two dozen times at least what we've used so far in the whole history of civilization. Now, that doesn't mean we'll, we'll be able to get it all. It's very hard to get. But so far, the oil industry has been really, really good at using technology to get new oil. And if we compare that to something like ethanol, the problem with ethanol is, I mean, the reason something like beer is expensive in part is because you have to plant a whole field of crops and you have to do, you have to cut them all down, you have to bring them together, you have to use a lot of energy, and sometimes you even lose energy on the whole uh, process. So my point here is not, is that, is that oil is a choice that we make. We use it because we choose it, and, and when something better comes along, we will choose that, but it's crucial that we be free to choose it 
because it's so important to our lives. And if we make something important to our lives more expensive and less available, it's like a global pay cut. It's, it really can hurt us, and we need to take that seriously. Thank you. So uh, again, thank everyone from ASM, from Students for Objectivism, Alex for stepping up. Uh, we're not here to debate the legacy of oil. We cannot argue with its history, its discovery, its use, its importance during industrialization, and the vital role it's played in raising our standard of living. These facts are not in dispute, and I will not dispute them, they are undeniable. I venture that my opponent would seek to crystallize and amplify, however, the size and scope of these realities in your minds, um, in better effort to position himself in his arguments during this debate. Um, what we are here to debate is whether our continued consumption of this legacy fuel represents a danger to human existence or not. There will be certain ironies revealed to you by both sides regarding this question, but the first of which is this. Mr. Epstein will argue on behalf of continued and unadulterated use of oil, and thereby representing himself as a very powerful and strong advocate for the industries and businesses involved in oil drilling, extraction, and refining. Yet he heads the Center for Industrial Progress, builds itself as Center for Industrial Progress, and I just want to say, this sort of nullifies any opportunity or argument he would seek to make during this debate on oil on behalf of other industries. So that by default leaves me to represent the myriad of other companies that would have great benefit or see great benefit if we were all to decrease our use of oil a little bit. These include coal, biofuels, wind, solar, electricity generation, transmission companies, battery companies. Um, what place do they have at the table opposite the side that Mr. Epstein has claimed for himself and for oil? Regardless though, the shift away from oil is gonna to have to look like something. There should be a vision for what shape it will take. I will outline for you four ways in which the use of oil can be dramatically impacted under two grand headings. But instead of talking to you about new technologies that may or may not take root, I will speak in stark economic terms for you to follow instead during this opening. This is after all a debate about danger. And danger implies warning. And I'm warning you here, there are four ways to essentially impact our consumption habits surrounding oil. All four are stunningly difficult scenarios to imagine. And they represent challenges to us ethically, morally, financially, and most important, behaviorally. But first I want to ask you a question. What needs to take place for oil to drop from the current average of around $100 US, US dollars per barrel to a more comfortable price of, say, 20 US dollars per barrel? I ask this question because it's relevant to the transportation fuels landscape and what it might look like if we moved away from our current consumption levels. Less consumption would probably translate from less demand. Less demand equals lower price. The collapse in price will be excuse me, reflected in one or combination of the following scenarios take root. For this to happen, I will use standard macroeconomic theory and principles to clear up this picture. A huge change in consumption will only take place under the grand headings of supply and demand. To affect demand, one of the following three things must happen to shift the cost per barrel downward, at least according to his historical norms. Number one, economic depression. We have to root for, plan, engineer, cheer on system-wide collapses of economies elsewhere in the world. While insulating our own economy from these collapses, 
In the end, though, this proposition proves quite risky, as it will assuredly lead to destabilization in whatever part of the world these collapses are taking place. This will invariably lead to greater U.S. involvement. U.S. will need to take a more profound role in global security matters. Think bigger footprint in places that don't react well to a bigger American footprint. We will depart with great wealth to ascertain control of geopolitical events involving destabilization. This is what I mentioned earlier, involving necessitating insulating ourselves from these demises. Number two, efficiency increases. Mandate efficiency increases in manufactured products that consume power. Cars, buildings, laboratories, industrial zones, homes, residential schools, or residential facilities, schools, factories, etc. Mandates almost always come from the government, so there are some unappetizing elements in taking this approach. Businesses and consumers have historically responded antithetically, that is not positively, to increasing efficiency as the tech required to do this is costly. It affects their bottom lines. Efficiency increases do have the added benefit of helping to change human behavioral tra traits over short and long-term timelines. With efficiency arguments, the cost of implementing the tech to gain the efficiency is always compared to the cost of doing nothing. When consuming oil is defined as the zero point or the point of doing nothing with regard to our consumption, it will always be the cheapest option available. And for the record, I am not a tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy theorist. I don't think that we're going to run out of oil. I just think that we're going to wake up one day and be very unhappy with the price. Number three, we can introduce alternatives. Alternative fuels will expand competition in the transportation fuels marketplace and potentially decrease demand for existing supplies. This puts downward pressure on prices. To accomplish this, we've already been experiencing the genesis of this transition. It is costly. The tech required to do this is very capital intensive and it requires substantial changes to our transportation infrastructure. Cars have been re-engineered, battery technologies must improve, and power generation and delivery modes must expand to meet new demands for electricity to power battery-powered vehicles. Furthermore, to complete this transportation marketplace makeover in a carbon-neutral manner, for those of you that believe in all the climate change hullabaloo, um, carbon capture and injection technologies have to come online, and they have to do so simultaneously. So in addition to the sheer volume of capital required to do this, I introduced to you this, to this already enormous equation an added dimension of timing. Now the only one I could think of to affect supply, number four, the following item must happen to shift the cost per barrel downward. New discoveries of cheap oil need to be made. Consider, however, that the grand pace of new discoveries of supergiant oil fields of liquid hydrocarbons has nearly evaporated. Grand fields of discovery represent any discovery at initial time of discovery possessing at least 20 billion barrels of recoverable oil. The most recent grand field discovery took place in Tengiz field in Kazakhstan in 1979. Prior to the discovery of Tengiz in 1976, Mexico's Cantrell oil field was discovered and was estimated to contain 35 billion barrels of oil. It came online in 1981, reliably producing over 1 million barrels of oil per day until 1995. Production dropped off precipitously. 
Pemex, which is the national oil company in Mexico, then invested over $2 billion to create a nitrogen gas injection facility that they used to restore productivity. And indeed, well productivity restored briefly to over 2 million barrels per day until 2003, when volume dropped precipitously again to under 600,000 barrels. This well is beyond maturation and has entered serious decline, currently producing under 400,000 barrels per day. I highlight Cantorell for many reasons. First, it's the most reliable motion picture historical understanding of how supergiant fields have gone the way of the dodo bird. Furthermore, it highlights the expected productivity timelines and eventual maturation of these fields. These are inescapable realities that my opponent cannot circumvent with his arguments. These, I will say this, cheap oil is gone. The only remaining stocks are locked up in geological formations and in countries that will require an intense amount of capital to bring it to market. Depending on supply side, fa depending on supply side factors to push the price of oil downward is a fool's errand. It's not going to happen and therefore we should concentrate on reducing demand to drive these prices downward. I'm not an anarchist, so I would tend to argue against destabilization of other national economies to affect price. So let us move forward and focus on reducing demand using increasing efficiencies and introducing competitive alternatives to legacy fuels like oil. Thank you. For our next section, we have a five-minute question for each of the uh, speakers, and they'll have a chance to uh, have a rebuttal in there as well. Um, Dino posed the question to Alex. Assuming you can afford it, is it smart or stupid to buy a Chevy Volt, and why? Alex, you have five minutes. Um, well, I'm assuming that it's the best and most affordable car, then I would, yeah, of course I would buy it. I mean, it, so I think this gets to, um, something that I might not have made clear, but I, I don't think um, Dino represented correctly about my position. Um, in no way, shape, or form am I arguing that you should use oil, Erica should use oil, that the government should promote oil. I'm not arguing anything remotely like that, any more than I'm arguing that you all should be forced to buy an iPhone 5. Now, I chose an iPhone 5 because I thought it was the best value for my money. Nothing more, nothing less. So what I'm arguing for tonight is simply the freedom to choose the best. And what that includes is the freedom of other people to compete um, against oil. And there are actually a lot of exciting ways in which this has happened historically and in which it's happening uh, right now. Now, I don't think it makes sense to call oil a legacy fuel as if it's the fuel of the past because it's the fuel that's keeping billions of people alive today. It's like calling steel like a legacy metal. Well, it's been around for a long time, but it's still the best. Um, so, for example, oil used to be a very, very common fuel for power plants for generating electricity. So what happened? Well, it turned out that coal and natural gas and for a wire nuclear were better ways of generating electricity, so people stopped using oil. Um, 
right now, interestingly enough, the, the biggest competitor to oil is natural gas in the transportation sector. And this is a, a really exciting development. Incidentally, oil and natural gas are the same industry. So the oil industry has actually created its biggest competition. Uh, but the situation you have right now is while natural gas doesn't have the same strength to weight ratio as oil, right now, last time I checked, it's about six times cheaper per unit of energy. And so what that does is it makes something like an electric car more viable, especially for, not for a plane, but for smaller applications. It makes possible a natural gas car. Uh, there's a fuel that's like ethanol called methanol that you can transform coal uh, or natural gas into, that's another viable thing. So again, it's all about the freedom to choose the best. Um, and that's, that's what I'm advocating. But we need, so, and that gets to what is, my policy is the freedom to choose the best. Dino described his vision for the future. And I just wanna say, I proudly have absolutely no vision for the future of energy. Because how would I know what the best people can come up with and how would I know what you guys can want? My vision is just that the best people to, are free to produce the best. So if that somehow involves solar and wind, fantastic. If that involves nuclear, fantastic. If that involves natural gas, uh, fantastic. The danger though is anytime you deviate from the policy of the freedom to choose the best, that means that you're compromising consumer well-being. And the more it's an experiment, the more that it's Dino's vision instead of the producer and the consumer's vision, the more your standard of living is going to be compromised because it means that someone from the government or some advisor to the government or some professor at some university is gonna be saying, this is the fuel of the future. And just look at what Edison, even, even Henry Ford, one of the smartest men in the world and the New York Times and everyone else, what they thought was so promising turned out to be very immature uh, technologies. And if people had been forced to use those, that would have meant agriculture would have been completely held back. Many more people would have starved. Many more people wouldn't have gotten their first car. Many people wouldn't have been able to take a honeymoon, you know, because the car would have been so expensive. And so with oil, again, oil is fulfilling functions that are crucial literally to life and death. Agriculture alone is the reason why you always want the freedom to use the best fuel and the best material. Because if we do not, people will die. They will die, they will be malnourished. And not just that, you guys will take, as I said, a pay cut. Because oil, oil underlies everything in the economy, the functions it's fulfilling. And so if you make those functions more expensive, it's harder for you to get a job, it's harder for you to pursue your dreams, and there's no reason to. We want freedom to choose the best. That's my policy. So Alex's question to Dino was, to what extent should consumers be free to choose what kind of energy they use, and to what extent should the government control what kind of energy you use? Respond to the to his last, his last thing. So I'll respond to that question um, in a second. The first thing I wanted to ask him was, you have no vision for energy future. That's, I think, rather unfortunate because without vision, there's no planning, there's no directive, there's no ability for people to have confidence because confidence typically is derived from direction and planning. These are all business principles that we depend on. I have a three-year-old who depends 
on me every day and my wife to, from the time she wakes up, make decisions and provide a vision for what her day is going to look like. And without that, she would be, I would say, probably pretty lost and have difficulty moving and growing and developing in this world. So I think it's very necessary to have a vision. And I would argue that it's not my vision. If you want to put my name on it, I'd be happy to make money off of it. But it's not my vision, okay? This is the vision for which a combination of forces, market-driven forces in combination with government, consumers, business industry, so on and so forth, have decided the way that we should go. And part of the program I'm at, which is not just at any university, and I like to think I'm not any kind of professor, but the part of the program I am involved with in Sustainable and Renewable Energy Systems at Platteville is that we are teaching students about the broader issues. We take them to power plants that are traditionally coal-fired. We teach them to analyze topics as they currently exist and how they might work toward solving tomorrow. The idea is to solve problems today so that our generation, my generation, deals with these energy issues so when younger generations proceed to deal with issues on their own, they're your generation-specific issues. You're not dealing with baggage left over from the past because our generation couldn't agree on what to do with it. Now, to answer Alex's question more directly, when do I think it's appropriate for government, how much time do I have? How much, when do I think it's appropriate for government to intervene and make choices on behalf of people? I, I think basically only one time is it universally accepted, and that's during time of war. Whenever our government is at war, when our nation is fighting a national security threat, then, as we saw in World War II, the government sets rations and the population is expected to go along with them. So I think that is the only permissible time in which the government can dictate directly to its population, you're going to be using this much fuel, this is how much you have, these are the things you can use it for. Now, outside of that, I think that what we have here in the United States is, it's not a pipe dream, it's, it's a wonderful thing in terms of how we're able to choose for the most part, what energy systems we use to power our homes, our facilities, our transportation. My interest is in transportation, and I love, love, love the idea of owning an electric car someday. I don't have the finances for it just yet, but I think that's the direction that we're traveling, electrification, and I want to be able to invest in that as soon as possible. And I'm hoping and hoping hoping that Government will maintain its subsidies, its promotion of this technology to keep it in the marketplace because we're never going to see oil below $100 a barrel average for now until time in memoriam. It's just not going to happen. And you made another good point. So many products that we derive everyday lifestyle convenience from are made from oil. Imagine if we conserved a little bit more of it by driving cars that didn't run on it. How much would that impact the price of these products that we use? You're talking about antibiotics that cost $5 a dose, 90% of which are derived from petroleum products and petroleum chemicals. If there's a lot more petroleum out there washed on the market, the drug companies going to be able to buy these intermediates at a much cheaper price. And in doing so, the price of your antibiotics is going to go from $5 a dose to $3 a dose. And that's a benefit to everyone. So I'm all for using oil, using it smartly make plastics, make packaging, lighter weight packaging, um, all sorts of things for it. I'm all for expanding those uses medicinally, agriculturally. Um, our agriculture industry depends on so much inputs derived from oil, and I think we should reserve it for that. And I think that's how I'll finish.
So for the next round of questioning, Dr. Ress brought up a point, he was talking about subsidies. Mm -hmm. And so, one of the arguments that I commonly hear is, you know, big oil gets a lot of subsidies, but they make a lot, they make billions of dollars. Shouldn't renewables have sub, shouldn't we preserve those subsidies for renew, uh, renewables as well? And you have five minutes to respond and you can rebut uh, Dino's statements. Um, okay, so I pretty much just have one point, um, but I think it's a really important point, which is that we should be free to use the best sources of energy that um, creative people can come up with. Uh, and that includes, so a, a corollary of that, or, or one implication of that, is there should be absolutely no subsidies uh, for any form of energy whatsoever. So that's, that's my stance on that. Now, as an empirical matter, I agree with the Obama administration. You might be surprised to hear those words come out of my mouth, but I agree with their assessment that uh, solar and wind get dozens and dozens of times the subsidies as um, oil and natural gas. It's a controversial issue, and if, if Dina wants to raise some specific aspect, I'm, I'm happy uh, to deal with it. But I think my general impression is that most of the, the claims that oil is subsidized uh, are, are hollow. And, and just one kind of common sense way of thinking about this is if something is subsidized, you would expect that in certain countries, only the countries in which it's subsidized, it would be dominant, but then in other countries it wouldn't and particularly countries with no incentives. But if you take a place like Japan or a place like Israel, Israel is a good example because until recently had basically no oil and many neighbors that, with oil that very much disliked it. Um, Israel used a ton of oil. And again, it's just because it was the best choice. And once again, I just want to stress, we should absolutely be free um, to pursue the best things and consume them. And this gets to the issue of um, I think one thing we should be able to agree on in this room is that with very few exceptions, we are not three-year-olds. So, and I mean that, and I find that offensive as a comparison to discuss adults in a free society as three-year-olds. Because when you have a child, the child is pre-rational. He can't make decisions for himself. He certainly can't support himself. Um, you know, he or she can't create wealth. They, you're, the whole purpose is to train them uh, to be an adult. But then once you're an adult, no one has the right to tell you what to do in the way that you, have your, you can tell your child what to do. The whole point is that you are a functioning adult. And part of what adults do that's absolutely amazing is that we figure out ways to cooperate and create all sorts of brilliant things. So, so to take the issue of vision, I had no vision whatsoever of this. Neither did 99.999% of the world. And yet it happened with absolutely no government involvement. Why? Because individuals are the source of vision. Individuals alone and in collaboration are the source of vision in a site. It's individuals that create all kinds of new things. If there's a revolution in solar, it's going to be based on you know, a bunch of creative individuals uh, doing that. So, so there's, uh, we often hear, if, if people don't want the government to control our choices, it's said that they have no vision or they're against action. 
You guys, every day in your lives, are taking action. I mean, why are you at a university? You're taking action to improve your mind. You're taking action so that one day you can do something really creatively with your life. Again, I find it offensive that I happen to be lucky enough to be in a field where the government basically has no control over my actions since I do writing and speaking. I find the idea offensive that somehow if the government isn't doing something, there's no action going on. All the exciting action, leaving aside the necessary like police and military, which are I know, unbelievably necessary, the exciting action is in the free market with individuals uh, producing and choosing uh, the best. Let me just see if there's anything else. Yeah, and so if this is, one more point is, I, I keep wanting to stress the same thing, because I think in debates it's easy to get overwhelmed by points, and you'll hear like 50,000 points, and people just try to, to, swamp, to uh, swamp each other, and, and you can't really remember anything. That's why I'm really emphasizing on this fundamental of choosing the best, which I think is the policy, and then trying to integrate with that. But then the opposite is not being free to choose the best. And unfortunately, Dino didn't answer my question at all, because what I wanted was for him to specify in what ways the government should restrict the use of oil. That's what I want to know. In what ways should we not be free to use the best source of energy in our judgment? And because there are people in this culture who believe that 80% of oil use should be banned, which I believe would literally would ruin the lives of billions of people. So I need Dino to be specific, otherwise we can't have a real debate. So I have one question for you and you have five minutes to answer it or rebut and use it how you wish. Um, speaking of efficiency, um, let's say electric cars, if we're not using a combustion engine, we're using electricity. Um, since we're talking about fossil fuels, I what I presume you would say maybe wind or solar would be a good way to uh, power those batteries in terms of efficiency. Or if we conserve our oil so that we use less of it per car, it always came to mind um, the sort of paradox where if we have cheaper oil and because it's more efficient, we'll use more. So in terms of efficiency, um, you know, how would we power these uh, electric vehicles and how would you respond to this sort of paradox where if it's cheaper and we have better efficiency, we use more of it anyways? So uh, I want to start saying that's an excellent question. Um, I'll address some of the matters Alex raised earlier. Um, I want to answer Thomas's question specifically with regard to efficiency. Um, with internal combustion engines, you can only, there's a ceiling of efficiency of around 40%, and that's being generous, okay? With electrical engines or electric-based generators, those efficiencies can run from 60 at a minimum to upwards of 95% of the power that's made available to them. They're efficiently transported, and, I'm sorry, transferred into mechanical energy for propulsion. So efficiency arguments, electricity in my mind wins hands down. Um, it's just a matter of sorting through um, the infrastructure improvements that need to be made to expand capacity for electrification. That's what I have learned and that's my position on that. Um, as far as oil being cheaper, I would love for oil to be cheaper. I want it to be cheaper and abundant and plentiful, but I just think that the way to get there, again, is for us to move away from using so much of it in our cars. 
I'm not arguing that oil is bad. I'm arguing that the way we currently use it is beyond dangerous because we're putting so many elements of our lifestyle at risk beyond just not being able to move from point A to point B. We're putting our agriculture at risk. We're putting our medicines at risk. There's so many things that are vital that Alex pointed out that I agree with wholeheartedly that would benefit from more abundant oil. So I hope we're not in dispute on that. Now, as for talking about um, being offended about comparing um, the American consumer population to a three-year-old, um, I gotta tell you, I know some three-year-olds that are far more creative than a lot of adults that I know. So I think some three-year-olds might be offended by that comment. Um, it goes to the broader question and comment that um, it's not in terms of one person in a totalitarian position imposing their will and power over someone else. It's really about licking your finger and seeing which way the proverbial transportation fuels marketplace winds are blowing. Okay? And right now that's pointing toward um, increasing and expanding um, battery powered vehicles, plug-in hybrid electric vehicles, hybrid vehicles, and cars that are much more efficient or much more efficient from a miles per gallon standpoint. That's the reality of where I think the marketplace is going. It's not a will or a vision that I am trying to impose on all of you. Um, that's, I think, just the dynamics of the situation we're dealing with. So I don't really think I have anything else to respond to. All right, I hope you enjoyed that part of the debate. The rest of the debate will be in the full episode. I mentioned at the outset the importance of being clear on the conclusion. And you can probably tell by listening, because I repeated it so much, that I was trying to be super clear on what I meant that oil is a healthy choice, namely that it's the best, and that my policy in action is that we need the freedom to pursue the best. And I tried connecting the different ways in which Dino stated his position into what that would mean in reality and how that was very how that very strongly deviated from the freedom to choose the best. Uh, and I you might have been able to tell I, I thought that unfortunately he was not being too clear, and I don't know if it's because he wasn't clear himself, or but in any case, it wasn't clear with the audience what he actually meant. Uh, I mentioned before the whole issue of, of vision, what that means, and, and talking in vague terms and vision, and then mentioning, the, I mean, the three-year-old thing, uh, you know, I found, uh, I found just to be completely wrong and, and very revealing. But ultimately, what we want is who is going to be telling whom what to do, assuming you're not in favor of a, of a policy of, of laissez-faire and energy, which is my own policy. What does it mean to have a vision? What would this look like? And it's not okay to just say, well, you know, we'd work it out as a society. No, because our whole job here is to be advising society. So we can't just say, well, we're going to give an unlimited and effective amount of power are going to give a ton of power. We have no idea how that's going to be used, but we trust that people who are completely uninformed will know better than we do. Now, if you have an idea of how power must be used in some 
context, then you need, if you're an expert, if that's your field, then you need to be specific. And th this is very much similar to what happened in the McKibben debate. I was, uh, I kept, I kept repeating what McKibben's conclusion was. Now McKibben stated his conclusion other places, but he was very reluctant to state it uh, in in that debate. He's in general his whole trajectory has been just as a parenthetical. He he was much more explicit about his beliefs in earlier works, and then once he decided in recent years that his movement had become a failure. And this is this is not me caricaturing it. He said this in his book Earth, among other places. Once he thought it had become a failure, he has tried to become more mainstream. It doesn't doesn't sound as good to say we should outlaw 95% of our most important source of energy. That doesn't sound as good as, you know, just vaguely we need to save the planet or even we need to divest universities of their investments in fossil fuels, which sounds fairly, uh, fairly mild. So anyway, in, in both cases, we have people with this green energy view, with this government intervention view, not not embracing or even specifying what exactly their conclusion is. And I think that this is not an accident. And the reason is that precision and specificity favor the true view. And there can't be more than one true view. And if you think about, well, why is there so much, there's so much disagreement about things? Why are these issues so hard to resolve? Well, the reason is, is that they're, they're complicated. They're not just something that you can just look out right in front of you and see an oil spill if, in the very rare event that's in front of you and say, oh, okay, oil must be bad because oil is spilled here. No, there is this whole range of facts that you need to take into account. And the way that you take that into account, the tools that you use to do that are, are abstract concepts, concepts that can allow you to think about at the same time all the oil spills, but also all the incredibly positive things that oil does and our ability to technologically cope with oil spills and the information that we have about what oil is made of and what oil spills actually do and don't do. Um, so in any case, there's just this complete mass of information that goes into coming to the right conclusion. And it's a lot of the, you know, the challenge of thinking is to come to a conclusion that then, that then really maps to the concrete reality in front of us. And in particular, that acting on that conclusion Will lead to, uh, you know, will lead to the best results in reality. Um, but it's very easy because there's so much complexity, and because abstract concepts have have the capacity to be used way too abstractly. There's the capacity to manipulate words and even manipulate. Uh, out-of-context facts or even made-up facts in such a way that you can seem to prove anything uh, to anybody. But the more concrete you are about your concepts, about, okay, this is exactly what I mean. This is exactly what I mean in reality. If you, if, you know, I mean that the government should not... So, for instance, what I, what I was saying in terms of, of energy policy, 
in essence, the government should protect property rights. It should prevent one person from polluting another person's uh, land. And then there are certain complex applications of that. But in no way, shape, or form whatsoever should it have any preference uh, of what kind of energy should we use. So th there should be a separation of government and energy. Now, there's a lot more to say about exactly how that would work, but it's, it's pretty concrete. And when it's pretty concrete, it allows you to think carefully about and specifically about okay what the, what would this look like what what and it, and it allows you to think of what kinds of situations would arise and what would be the consequences of those situations whereas if you talk vaguely about say the issue of of a vision or talk about we collectively like we need to do x without specifying is this we a bunch of individuals acting uh in cooperation voluntarily, or is this some set of government bureaucrats representing everyone, or is it some mob vote of everyone just, just uh, you know, where 51% can vote away the freedom of 49%? Those specifics matter immensely. You can't even begin to think about the issue until you know exactly what's going on. But if someone, for whatever reason, is on the premise of the government should have X power, but there's a lot of facts that would contradict that, uh, as long as you're specific about what the power means, then in a sense it's in your interest. Uh, I mean, on on the premise that you're, it's okay to that that in the first place you want to be promoting a false idea. It's in your interest to be vague, and it's usually not even that that directly devious because it's more that the whole that the person's thinking has never been clear in the first place. So when they talk about we should X, it's just never been. It's not stressed that, no, when we use words, we have to be really specific. So it can't just be, you know, we should, we should not embrace oil. We should move away from oil. What That could mean two different things. That could mean I run a company that produces a competitor to oil, and it's going to be much better. Or it could be, mean I run a government agency that's going to shut down oil production. Those are, those are so different. Uh, and by... By being vague about it, what you allow is you allow association with the with the good things or the better things, such as, hey, someone could come up with something better. Who's against that? You you attach yourself to that while really advocating in practice the coercion. So I hope that's helpful just as uh, a thought on why it's so, so, so important to be clear about what's one's own conclusions, what they mean in reality, and to demand that others' conclusions be be made clear. And if, if they're not, if they're vague about that, it, it, you can't really do much with what they tell you. And you can, you can, if you think you get some facts, you can integrate it into your own conclusions. But in terms of their view, if they don't say what they're after or what, what they're ultimately uh, concluding, usually what that means is they want to pull you in a direction, they want, to, they want to start moving you toward a destination, but not tell you what that, that destination is. And there's this whole phenomenon of, uh, what is the expression? It, it, Ayn Rand had a good expression, I, I don't remember it exactly, but it's something like, yesterday's uncontested absurdities are today's accepted slogans. And it's the idea that, okay, 
in, say, energy, well, a hundred years ago, it would have seemed crazy that the government would be, say, supporting a company like Solyndra, or that the government could just, um, on a whim, start or stop any project it wants. Certainly 150 years ago, that would not have been uh, considered acceptable. Or even, even that the government can just shut down any project in the name of any kind of plant or animal species whatsoever. Uh, but the way these things are, are enacted is, well, they don't say, well, we, th we think that all the rest of nature has precedence over human beings, and so let's pass a law. They don't go from, from capitalism to that. They go from capitalism to, well, we should protect this one species. You shouldn't be free to decide about what to do about that animal. And you know those who want to protect it shouldn't have to take any responsibility. The government will take responsibility. And then you get to that, and then you get to, okay, well, then... Um, then what about this swamp, or as, they, as they'll call it, a wetlands? And then you, you start expanding and expanding and expanding, and there's this implicit idea never identified that the government should subordinate human rights and human well-being to the alleged well-being of the rest of nature. But it's not identified as a policy. It's not precisely identified so it's just it's just based on any given, uh, but but people are are pulled that way, and yet if you say okay, but what what are we after? What's the policy? Is it just that there's one special case, and then why is it special? And what's what's your overall policy? What's your overall conclusion? But without without that precision, again, it's being you're being taken to a destination that you do not know. And one more perspective on it is you can't know if something is a good reason or not unless you know what it's a reason for. You can't know whether something is a good reason or not unless you know what it's a reason for. So next week we'll get into the, the second half of the debate, which has a lot more Q&A, uh, a lot more interaction, and a very interesting discussion of nuclear power, which... Uh, I look forward to talking about, particularly because I think uh, Dr. Ress is saying something very unscientific about nuclear power, and yet he's the trained scientist, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm uh, not even a scientist, but what I know about science is, is primarily self-taught, uh, and yet it's possible, I think, for someone in the self-taught position to um, to be to be 100% right about an issue, and for someone who's a trained scientist. Uh, to be wrong and to make a very, very crude mistake. So I think that'll be, that'll be really interesting to listen to and to think about how does that happen uh, and to think more broadly about how it is that, that people can be really, really wrong about things even in their own, uh, even in their own domain and then positively how how to how to make our own thinking more accurate so and that that's going to be a theme the next time is is in particular the issue is going to come down to i think how do i know what i don't know one of the most crucial skills in in thinking about these things is just always being clear on what do i know what do i not know 
What do I sort of know? And that if, if everyone practiced that, it would be so much of a better world because we'd be much less prone to just jump to conclusions and jump to assertions and feel like we have to have a position on everything and instead be able to say, okay, I don't know anything about this or what might be more likely, I know a little about this. So here's what I know. And then let's use that as a starting point and learn more. But if we feel like, well, we have to have a considered conclusion on everything, it's not going to lead to considered conclusions on everything. It's going to lead to unconsidered, uh, hasty conclusions. And then people who haven't thought through the issues just yelling and at each other and, and debating senselessly. Whereas on the other hand, if, if people really focused on, okay, this is what we know, this is the good starting point, then you can get a lot done. All right, that's all for this week. As always, if you want to, want to reach me, questions, comments, love mail, hate mail, you can reach me at alex at alexepstein.com. Until next week, remember to come back, listen to the second half of the debate. I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.